0: So these next three questions, please can you speak about right effort as it relates to daily and family community life, i.e. relationship with other people, and also of Anicca in the same context, impermanence, right effort in daily life and relating to other people, and impermanence. And this question, which says, halfway through the retreat, Oops, it was written on Tuesday. (laughs) Sorry about that, whoever wrote this question. As we settle into the retreat, (laughs) as we end the retreat, (laughs) uh, as we settle into the retreat routine, sometimes with ease and sometimes not, could you read through the eight precepts for us to underline the part they are playing in simplifying our life? And, what personality changes have you noticed within yourself, particularly in the first few years of training? Have you noticed general trends of change in non-monastics? Can you describe them? Given that life is fast-paced, often morally corrupt, and against the way. What are the advantages of training as a layperson? So I sense in all of those three questions (coughs) an interest and concern about the kind of effort that we're making and how it relates to our daily life, both here on retreat and, and also in everyday life and our relationships with other people. As far as uh, the question here about personality changes and in this life as a monastic or what have I noticed trends in uh, lay people who are, have who taken up training with some seriousness I would say that whether the ones living the life as a celibate renunciate, or as a, as a monk or nun, or whether the ones living life as a, as a layperson, as a householder? As far as I'm concerned, that's just a lifestyle choice, and that's got to do with all sorts of conditions—not just preferences, but our accumulations, our karma, you know, what we came into this life with. And 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 that's the bigger picture, we're often the details of which we can't see. However, we all find ourselves in life making choices and and whether you choose to engage practice in a monastery, or whether you choose to engage practice in household, in lay life, in relationship with others, is not the most important thing. What's important is the way we appreciate what constitutes practice. Whatever choice we make, we're going to be faced with the raw reality that consistently throughout a life we have to face the evidence of our limitations. Whether we like it or not, we all feel limited and when we're faced, when we come right up against the experience of limitation, what do we do with it? Do we fight it and say, I shouldn't be this way? I shouldn't have this resentment? I shouldn't have these desires? I shouldn't be so confused? I should be more clear about my life? I should know where I'm going in my life? Or is there the capacity Of heart to meet this person, which is ourselves, in our experience of limitation, in an unobstructed relationship. Or do we get caught and indulge in conditioned obstructedness? And by obstructedness, I mean getting caught in saying how it should and shouldn't be on various levels and in various ways. All of us, monks or nuns or lay people, the practice is the same. We all encounter frustration, limited existence, suffering. What matters is whether we're willing to suffer consciously and look into the actuality of it, or whether we're committed to distraction and avoiding it, and basically delaying, uh, looking into it, and seeing what's actually taking place. And there are people living the householder's life, and people living the monastic life, who are the full spectrum of commitment, those who are enthusiastically committed to the reality, in the moment, of seeing what is, and those that are treading water, and then there are those that are enthusiastically committed to distraction both as I say in, in the, whatever your lifestyle choice might be what's different is the uh, the consequences of the choices that we make are quite real but there's not a right or wrong way or a better or best way of doing things it's whether it's true for us that matters mm. I can speak personally and and say that living as a monastic, as a monk. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult choice, but I don't have any regrets. Yeah. I have regret some of the way I've handled it, but I don't have any regrets about the choice, not at all. I feel hugely fortunate and privileged to, to live this life. But it's ultimately frustrating, I and mean, that's what monastery is, mono, solitude, it's the solitary life. It's about living in solitude. It's about getting to know our loneliness. Yes, we live together in community, but in our togetherness, we're alone. We're very alone. Totally alone. And this, the structures of the life bring us to a intense recognition of our aloneness. And, and the agony of loneliness... The agony of loneliness is an indication of where we need to go to become one with our loneliness. So, for a, somebody living the monastic life, for a celibate renunciate, loneliness is not a symptom of failure, it's, a, it's an indicator. When you feel the pain of loneliness, as, as horrible as it is, it's, it's not a failure, not at all, it's an indicator. This is where you need to go to get your energy this is where you, this is where your resources are and so it's something that we we actually look into and welcome and and things that like excess socializing or or excess activity that distracts us from an accurate personal receptivity of the experience of loneliness are to be seen as unskillful yeah. Sometimes there are, in in monastic communities, not just of the Buddhist orientation, but other monastic communities, movements towards socialization and and group activities. But in my understanding, my observation of these things, invariably, either those activities die out or the communities die. Because the essential nature of the monastic life is the solitary life. It's about being alone and it is a, a choice that's made uh, for all sorts of reasons but hopefully, ultimately, essentially a choice that's made because it's in our nature to make that choice and it's not right or wrong to live the monastic life or right or wrong to live the household of the life it's what conduces with our conditions, what supports us in our commitment to the path of practice and so anybody who's lived the monastic life as a monk or a nun or a, or a postulant for any length of time, knows the pain of loneliness, but hopefully also has tasted the benefit of being supported in our loneliness by the spiritual community. You know, the spiritual community is a tremendous support in encouraging us to go deeper into our loneliness. To try and do it without any support is very, very difficult. To do it in any circumstance is very, very difficult. But to try and do it without any support at all is exceedingly difficult. And so the Buddha encouraged spiritual community or the Sangha. And so in this context of a shared commitment to the celibate renunciate lifestyle, when we encounter whatever level we are, as new or older in the training, whenever we encounter the experience of, of loneliness, this is not judged as being a bad sign. I'd rather say, look into it. Look into it. This is it. Well, if we've hopefully been adequately prepared with strength of mindfulness and steadiness of samadhi and the dignity that comes with sense restraint and, and moral conduct, then we're adequately prepared and, and we can embrace the energetic reality of loneliness. Not just the idea of, oh, I feel lonely, what can I do to get some company? I've got to write an email or read a book or bring somebody up or you're getting caught up in the mental proliferations about how to avoid the loneliness, but as a whole body mind to open up and to receive without any judgment, without any interpretation, the feeling of loneliness. To be encouraged to do that is a, is a, is a great thing and, and that is very much a part of what spiritual community is. So for a householder, you know, for a layperson, uh, it's very different, the, it's not necessarily the case that you're, you're forced to confront loneliness in the same way. If one's living in a relationship, a committed relationship with a partner, you know, and in many cases, probably most cases there's children as well, there's a, a very different experience and there's a sense of, of having companionship, close, intimate companionship. and and that's not anything that I can tell you very much about. The, the last close, intimate companionship I had was about 29 years ago, <laughs> and that's that's too long to remember, and even then it wasn't very mature or anything that I, I want to dwell on. So I, I can't, uh, I'm not in a position to be able to reflect on that, but with regards to the trends that one might see as changes in the early years of practice, um, the trends that I, I see in Everybody who's training, whether it's as a monastic or as a a lay person, the tendency that comes as a result of right practice is the shift in heart towards an increased willingness to receive the moment and its fullness. To receive the sensuality of the moment without interpretation, without indulgence, without avoidance. To receive the possibilities of the moment. Mm. In any experience, uh, our mind can imagine all sorts of possibility and some of these possibilities may be agreeable and some may be disagreeable and we can start getting caught up and. And being feeling very anxious because of some of the possibilities, as we practice rightly and truly, then we can accommodate these possibilities the frightening possibilities or the wonderful possibilities. I got a letter today from a a young friend who uh, lives in another country and and he was, he's been practicing for a few years, and he's, he's, very, very, he's very young, but very enthusiastic in his practice. And he's just come across the recognition that uh, he's been totally attached to this conceited view that he's um, in the best religion. Because there's not many people in the country he lives who are Buddhist. There's nobody in his family, and probably nobody else in his village, Who's a Buddhist and so he's a Buddhist and he's a solitary Buddhist and and he's been really holding on to his idea of himself as a Buddhist in a very tight way. And uh, that's perfectly understandable. That's you know how we begin. And right practice has taken him to the point where he's actually loosened the way he holds the perception of himself as a as a Buddhist and and then he up comes this insight, this Perception of how conceited his view was about I'm the best Buddhist around and and Buddhism is best and my teacher is best and and, uh, and then following that comes a sort of oh my goodness he was he was articulating how after he saw this he, he got caught in this terrible doubt oh I've just been brainwashed this Buddhism is just a another just a system of brainwashing he said he'd been watching a a video of in Nazi Germany, pre-World War II Nazi Germany, where, where the, uh, the Nazi youth would go around teaching all the young people to sing uh, nationalistic songs that would praise Hitler and, and, and the nationalistic views that were being uh, put around at the time. They would sing all these songs and basically it was a very clear way of programming a huge number of, of people, including the young people, into a very distorted and disfigured view. And this seeing this video coincided with his recognizing how limited his initial grasp of Buddhism was, and and he fell into this hellish doubt whereby he decided that he'd been thoroughly mistaken all this time, and Buddhism was just another load of codswallop, Uh, just another programming for imbeciles. And he'd made a terrible, humiliating mistake And uh, he had a bad time uh, for a wee while. But fortunately his practice was, was adequately balanced, whereby after not too long a period, he was able to reflect on the very experience of this shift and the reality that he was caught up in, the reality of his experience was that actually he was doubting. He was doubting. He didn't know that Buddhism was a load of cod's wallet. He didn't know that he'd just been programmed to believing some cultic nonsense. He just fell into doubt for a period of time. and But the possibility that he had been caught up in this was there in his mind, but his practice was sufficiently broad and non-judgmental and here and now, so he was able to even accommodate that possibility without grasping it, without becoming it. If in that moment when this thought had come up, I've just been programmed by this, this cult of weirdo monks and Menendo is just another sort of a Nazi, <laughs> if he hadn't been properly prepared, then he could have actually thrown the whole thing out of the window, gone out and got drunk like his mates and created a whole lot of unskillful karma. Fortunately, and I'm, I'm very impressed with the way this guy actually Uh, went through this period on his own, allowing the doubt to be there, allow the possibility that he's got it all wrong to be there in consciousness, to accommodate the possibility. So whether we're practicing as a householder, a layperson, or as a monastic, as far as I'm concerned, what what, what I notice is the right and, and, and beautiful result of that is this increased willingness to accommodate all sorts of possibilities that come to us. We don't jump to conclusions And so the heart and mind expand. so there's more possibilities, not fewer possibilities. And so if you consider that a a character or a personality change, I think it is. People become more relaxed, they become more trusting. Certainly that was my subjective experience. Instead of having to feel sure about things, I was able to let myself be not so sure. I you know sometimes people tell me when I talk I sound so sure and confident, but that's not my subjective experience. Yeah, uh, I know when I meet my brothers and sisters who are evangelical fundamentalist Christians and they're preachers, but they're all preachers, and, and they run churches and they've got their own parish. And, and when I meet them, I mean, I'm meeting people who are really sure. I mean, they don't have any doubts consciously. I mean they're really convinced that they've got the answer. And we're worlds apart because I can't say that I've got the answer. Yeah. I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling for something that I care a lot about and, and I, uh, there's something that I feel I want to serve. I, I, I'm willing to commit my life in service to something that I feel. But I can't say that I know or that I'm sure. And I I take that as a a very uh, I welcome that state I I actually feel okay about not feeling sure about things I think it's a healthy condition And as far as the uh, making right effort goes in in, in daily life and and accommodating family situations community situations and other people I think this, this is really relevant the contemplation or the the regular reflection or the recognition or the acknowledgement that actually we are in reality not sure most of the time makes us much nicer people to be with. If we out of fear of being unsure, hold on to ideas and take fixed positions. Well I know for myself that makes me a very rigid sort of person and and I feel sufficiently threatened in certain situations and, and fear comes up and there's a certain sort of contraction and rigidity kicks in. And when that kicks in, there's very few possibilities. My mind doesn't doesn't want to look at the myriad possibilities, it doesn't want to float around and and feel what's actually going to fit. In that state of contraction and limitation, it wants to get something and feel sure. Mm. And it's not productive, it doesn't benefit me, it doesn't benefit other people. Conversely, when we're able to remember the reality that actually we don't know, that's the truth, we don't know. When we can remember that, well then there's a relaxation or a releasing, an opening up and and a trusting, a reconnecting with a trusting relationship to life. So there are many contemplations that aim at leading us into a trusting relationship to life, and, but I, I think certainly this, this contemplation on the, uh, the fact that in a lot of situations, most of the time in fact, we don't know what's happening. And so when the tendency to grasp out of fear or insecurity arises, if we prepared ourselves to hold back, just, just, just wait. Mm-hmm. Not sure. I mean, this is one of this was most regular teaching, most regular teaching. Whatever, whatever you said to him, or whatever he said, he would always add afterwards, "But my er, mineir, not sure, Ne'er Nair means sure or certain. my is negative. my er. mineir. And that was that was really the bottom line in all of his teaching. Whatever was going on, you know, we're going to do this, or, or you know, next week I'm going to Bangkok. They main air, but not sure. And whenever you know, he would come to you, you'd go to him, and you've got a problem, and you're saying, "Oh, this is terrible, and this is absolutely intolerable." And he says, "Are you sure? Are you sure it's intolerable?" So he wouldn't tell you that it was main air, I was not sure, but he would ask you to look at it and. And there's a wonderful, one of, his, one of his printed, transcribed talks, printed in various of these books for free distribution, and I think recently also printed in the, the book that Wisdom Publications did, called Food for the Heart. There's a talk there, which I can't remember the name of it now, but interestingly, I was reading this talk at the uh, memorial service we had, for Ajan Chah, 10 days after he had died. Here in the hall, and I was, I was just sitting over here where Ajin Suwang is at the moment. And, and we had a large gathering of the community people from Newcastle and the area had all gathered around. And, and for ten days, we'd been chanting in the hall here, and meditating and reflecting with gratitude on our teacher who had, who had just passed away. And this light over here, that's behind Diamino here by the Tamar, and that picture were there. And they were put there, especially on that occasion. On actually the day Ajahn Chah died, somebody gave us this lamp, and we we, we turned the lamp on, and the lamp burned for ten days, or well, it was on permanently for ten days and ten nights. And then at this memorial service we were having, and I was reading this particular favorite talk of Ajahn Chah's, and I was reading it, and it came to this the kind of the key verse, the the key sentence where it says, "And any teaching." from any teacher that does not include the words impermanence the light bulb blue uh, is not the teaching of the Buddha. And of course I, I stop, I mean you know those things happen uh, what causes and what's actually going on who knows but certainly it it, it etched that particular aspect of Ajahn Chah even more deeply in my mind. Any teaching that doesn't contain the words not sure or impermanent is not the teaching of the Buddha. So as far as uh, making an effort here on retreat or in our daily life in a way that supports uh, the way we get on with other people, the way we participate in community and the way we keep our practice going, uh, I would certainly encourage this as a regular theme. Uh, However it translates for us, whether it's the impermanence of things, or whether it's the uncertainty of things, or whether it's the just not knowing or not feeling sure of things, however it translates for us, I think it's a, a precious, valid, and valuable, relevant contemplation. So, thank you very much for your attention this evening. <laughs>